You are listening to the Live Diet Free Podcast. I'm your host, Esther Avant, personal trainer, sports nutritionist, and weight loss coach. I'm here to help you lose weight for the last time without sacrificing your quality of life to do it. So pop your headphones in, go for a walk, and learn how to become the healthiest, happiest, and most confident version of yourself. Welcome back to Live Diet Free Podcast. We're talking today about how to develop the mental toughness that you need to reach your weight loss or really any goal. And I know mental toughness might not be the first thing that comes to mind when you think about skills to help you lose weight. But if maybe this is your first episode of this podcast, and if so, you will quickly learn that there is way more to it than just exercise and nutrition. If you have been uh, been around for an episode or two, you know that I talk a ton about how we tend to focus too much of our energy on what's the best diet, what are like the good foods and the bad foods, what are the best workouts, and we overlook this real mass of stuff kind of beneath the surface that really makes or breaks our success. At this point, it is unlikely that you don't know what to do to lose weight. And bearing in mind that there is no you know, perfect workout plan, there is no ideal diet, you have a pretty good idea for you personally where your opportunities are. You're probably sitting or laying more than you should be. You are probably not eating as much protein and fiber as you should. You're probably not lifting heavy enough weights consistently enough. You're probably not getting outside. You're probably not sleeping, etc. Most of that is not news to you. And that's why we hear so much weight loss and, and health-related advice. And we're like, yeah, 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 I know that already. Like, what's the secret? How do I actually do it? And that's where the mental piece comes in. I think people who are trying to lose weight would be overwhelmingly more successful if they spent more time on this mental piece. And therefore, the exercise and nutrition stuff would become much easier because you've done sort of like the, the pre-work or the, you've addressed the root issues that have made doing those things harder. All right, so that is sort of my my preface to why this episode is relevant to you if you have weight loss goals. A lot of us have this sort of mentality of I need someone to just tell me what to do or I need somebody to be mean to me, kind of like the, the drill sergeant, or I need to know that somebody is looking over my shoulder in order to follow through. And we, we have this sort of like external um, motivation and we we try to outsource um, kind of this piece of it. So that's sort of where all of this comes in. Um, I'm doing a review today of a book called Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. It's by a man named Steve Magnus, who is a, uh, a performance coach and author of a book called Peak Performance. So really, I'm going to relate what I read in the book to what's going to be relevant to you, which is your weight loss goals. And, and you'll find that, that this stuff is applicable to you know, life as well. So let's start with sort of how we currently think about toughness. Because part of the reason I even need to give any sort of like context like this is because most of us, and myself included, hear the word toughness and we think masculine, we think drill sergeant, we think tough, we think like sports of like you know, I play football and I get knocked down and I get back up again and I'm not like whimpering. Um, we think like this kind of no pain, no gain attitude. We think about, you know, being essentially trained 
to respond to fear and power and have this reaction like like I said just tell me what to do I'm a rule follower so I'll do it I I need tough love yell at me if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do and we then push through our discomfort because we want to avoid the punishment if we fail so a lot of this is sort of the current sort of definition or or, um, the way we think about toughness is more about appearing tough than it is how we actually handle difficult times right it's about having that tough exterior of like Go cry in your room, but don't cry in front of other people, right? Don't act like you're affected because then you'll appear weak. So what you know, the author really talks about in the beginning is how the problem with this is that without the fear or the power or the control in this sort of current definition, if you remove all that stuff, you remove the drill sergeant, you remove the no pain, no gain, you remove um, you know, sort, of, sort of that masculine toughness, all you're left with is like this shell of a person who doesn't have the necessary skills to navigate the adversity that they're inevitably going to face. So that's sort of the premise of the whole book. And and what I'm getting at here is if we continue to sort of follow this narrative that we need somebody to basically like beat us into submission, we are never going to put ourselves in position where we are more capable of navigating the challenges that life is going to throw our way. This is something I've been thinking about a lot recently because one of the things that I see really often is we'll have clients who are doing really, really well and making really great strides, not just in their weight loss, but in you know how they're approaching their lives and, and making themselves a priority. And then they get some sort of hurdle or a series of hurdles that just start to feel like too much and they tend to then pull back and say like, I can't focus on this right now. I need to take care of, you know, X, Y, Z, my job, my take care of somebody, that sort of thing. So what I've been thinking about is how do we put ourselves in a position where those things can happen in our lives as they are going to, but our knee-jerk reaction isn't to totally fall off when it comes to our health, put ourselves on, on the back burner how do we continue to show up as the healthiest version of ourselves in spite of whatever else is going on? And I think that really is kind of the root of being a tough person. So I want to offer you a new definition of toughness. Experiencing discomfort or distress, okay, we've all been there, leaning in, paying attention, and creating space to take thoughtful action. Right? That's not what most of us do. Most of us experience the discomfort or the distress. We freak out. We do whatever kind of is the path of least resistance or whatever is the most comfortable or familiar. And it's, it's certainly not thoughtful. It's just reactive. Part of the framework of this new definition of tough, toughness is that in order to make appropriate decisions, we need to be able to maintain a clear head. So we want to work on developing a set of tools that will help us handle adversity. So there's a quote from, from the book I want to share. Real toughness pushes us to work with our body and mind instead of against them, to face the reality of the situation and what we can do about it, to use feedback as information to guide us, to accept the emotions and thoughts that come into play, and develop a flexible array of ways to respond to a challenge. So I want to go back to 
the idea that so many of us hold on to, which is that we need someone outside to keep our lazy butts in line, right? If nobody else is looking over my shoulder, I'm certainly not going to be showing up for myself like unsupervised, right? Unfortunately, and and I want to be really clear here that I am not saying you shouldn't want help or, or, or need help. There is a major difference between having a coach like the ones in EA Coaching who are there to help guide you, help support you. Yes, help provide some, some external accountability, but doing it within a framework that is helping you develop those skills yourself. So we sort of liken coaching to a GPS. You may have heard me say that before, but you are, you are in the driver's seat. We are there to assist in getting you to where you want to be as directly and as efficiently as possible. But our role as coaches and as part of your you know, support system is not to you know, berate you or belittle you or shame you or any of that into showing up for yourself, right? We're going to ask you the questions. We're going to help you figure out why am I not doing what I said I was going to do? And yes, to an extent, just knowing somebody's going to ask those questions is going to help you take action. But it's much different than having somebody who's there with like a yardstick or like a taser or something and is treating you like cattle of like, just do as I say and like this will all, you know, be fine, right? So I just want to make that really clear that having support and guidance is not the same as feeling like you need a um, a, uh, a supervisor or, um, or, a, or a drill sergeant. All right, so... The reason that trying to outsource your accountability and your, and your motivation is problematic is because our inner drive is directly related to our, our mental toughness. And part of what helps us stay driven is how much control we perceive that we have over our lives and our choices and the results that we get. We're going to talk about this more in, in a minute, so I'm going to table that for now. The other piece that helps us stay focused and committed is our why. Being in pursuit of a goal that's aligned with who you are and what brings you enjoyment or, or contentment. And with that, recognizing that because this goal is aligned with who you are and what you want, you're actually choosing to do the work. You're not being forced to, right? You're not doing it because you don't want to get yelled at. You're not doing it because of fear of not. You're doing it because you want to, because the goal is important to you, and because you have the autonomy over your choices to make it happen. Something that, that really stood out to me was the mention that Tough people don't live in a black and white world of success or failure. And this really goes back to the all or nothing mentality that so many of us struggle with is it's, it's very easy to have these, you know, black and white parameters of this equals success, anything else equals failure. But what he's saying is that truly tough people see the shades of gray, see the nuance of, all right, well, maybe I fell short of this goal, but I still achieved this thing. They're able to you know, be resilient and recognize that it's not, we're not talking in absolutes. And I think that's a really, really important thing to remember. Another interesting concept is that of stress inoculation. And he talks about 
how we need to, quote unquote, vaccinate someone to stress in order to be able to handle it better. And that the first step is teaching someone the skills to cope with a situation. That without learning those skills first, putting yourself or someone else in an environment to practice is useless, right? You need to learn the skills before you need them so that then when you do need them, it just becomes practice. And he has some really interesting kind of military references in in the book, which, you know, being a military spouse, I feel like I have a, a decent understanding of, you know, military things, I guess, moderately decent. Um, but, but one of those things is, I think people who are outside the military tend to have this perception that, you know, people just, military service members just sort of get thrown into the deep end of like, this is a sink or swim, this is just like, figure it out, you're either, you're either have it or you don't. But in reality, so much of the training is built on learning the skills first, and then being put in the difficult situation to practice them. So he talks about a, a school, a survival um, kind of training school. And what that entails kind of at the tail end is that people are, you know, sort of sent out to the woods, essentially to you know, practice surviving and being captured and resisting um, and, and things like that. Uh, does, specifics don't really matter. The point is, the training doesn't start with them getting just like dropped off randomly in the woods to like, oh, figure it out, hope you don't anything anything poisonous, right? It starts out with classroom work, with learning how do you survive in these situations? So that then, once you have that knowledge, then you go out and practice it, right? And you actually stand a chance because now you you know this stuff. So I thought that was really interesting in terms of civilian life as well, right? Is when you are not under specific types of stress, that's the time to be working on developing the coping skills that you need so that inevitably when you are under a lot of stress, you have the opportunity to practice using those things, right? So if, um, if you struggle with emotional eating, which is something very, very common, the the best way to overcome that isn't going to be to not even think about it, like do like literally nothing until you're stressed and then be like, oh, right, this is when I always emotionally eat. Like, what should I do differently, right? You don't stand a chance because you're already in that situation. What you'd be better off doing is recognizing when things are not particularly stressful and thinking about like, okay, I'm not stressed now. Like, how do I go about doing things? What are some ways that when I am feeling stressed in the future, I could turn to besides food? So maybe that's you practicing journaling. Maybe that's getting you into a habit of meditating or taking a walk after dinner, sort of looking at like when I display this behavior in the future, what are the patterns that I can pick up on? Well, it's mostly in the evening. It's after certain things happen at work. Like you you train yourself to look at the situation and figure out in advance, like before you need the skills, what are the things that would benefit me? How can I practice these now so that then when I need them, I'm more likely to actually use them? Um, so talking about kind of the, the inoculation and vaccination, like immune system terms, I think what we really need to focus on is kind of twofold. That yes, it's it's helpful and it's important to sort of, you know, inoculate yourself to specific stressors. So like emotional eating, kind of honing in on, on that singular behavior and learning what you can about how to handle that. But I also think it's really important to just have a, a healthy and robust system to fight, you know, sort of like those circulating viruses that 
your immune system might not have prior knowledge about. I don't know. I might be might have gone too far down this analogy. I'm not sure if you're if you're going to be following here. But what I'm getting at is, yes, you want to feel like you know how to handle the specifics, but you also want to just be able to kind of trust yourself that. And whatever happens in the future, even if I can't predict it, I can also handle that, right? So it's like with your immune system, like, yes, you want it to be, hand- you want it to be able to handle like the common cold. And also you want it to handle whatever germs your kid brings home from school and be able to fight off that stuff as well, right? You don't want it to have to like have a name for everything. You just want it to generally do what it's supposed to do and cover you in those situations. So the same thing goes with your stress response and, and kind of your your mental response is have the 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 skills for the specific stressors that you can predict and also just have a generally healthy full robust toolbox of tools that you can use for whatever comes up even if you weren't anticipating that particular thing hopefully that makes sense um but essentially that you want to have like the general response and the adaptive response and a variety of methods to deal with whatever happens, even if you've never seen it before. So yes, it's ideal to prepare for specific circumstances. But as we all know, you can't, right? Nobody saw COVID coming. You can't prepare for every single thing that might you might encounter in the future. So even if whatever's coming up is unfamiliar, it's the first time you're dealing with a death in a family or it's the first time that your spouse is deployed. It might be the first time you're experiencing it, but you know that you have a number of methods to help you cope and overcome it. So what this all really boils down to and what it means for you and your weight loss goal is that you need to be learning how to navigate the discomfort that you're going to face. And this is really the crux of what we do in our Gone for Good program is, yes, we do the nutrition stuff. Yes, we do the exercise stuff. But the the bulk of it is the life stuff of how do you maintain your exercise and your, your nutrition when you feel like the world is falling apart around you? How do you develop that variety of methods, that that more robust toolbox so that you're prepared for the unexpected? So with that, I want to get into some of the specific pieces that are important for developing this type of mental toughness that will help ensure that you can not just reach your weight loss goal, but actually maintain those results once you do. So the first piece of that is aligning your expected demands with the actual demands. All right. So what we're talking about here is making sure that there's not a huge disconnect between what you think it's going to take to reach your goal and what it actually does. And this I see tripping up a lot of people is essentially we go into our next weight loss attempt with what sort of appears to be like overconfidence. I would argue that most of us aren't overconfident, but it it's sort of the the actions are similar in that we come out too hot, we try to do too much, and we we have that sort of, you know, tortoise and hare type thing of like we just come out the gates hot and peter out, right? That's where you end up like the yo-yo or the roller coaster, the ups and downs of, you know, being, you know, spurts of spurts of action followed by inaction and that sort of inconsistency. inconsistency. We approach a marathon with a sprint mentality. Um, and what happens is when we 
have that sort of confidence or that motivation or that that drive at the beginning. But then we come face to face with the reality that like, ooh, I was not prepared for this or like I might fall short or this is going to be harder than I was expecting or this is going to take longer than I, than I was expecting. We end up shifting from focusing on our goal to letting those negative thoughts persist. And what happens is in that first difficult moment, and, and I would be willing to bet you've experienced this, in that first difficult moment where maybe, you know, you have been working really hard for a few weeks and you stayed off the scale the whole time because you're like, I don't want it to get in my head, but like now it's been a month and, you know, for sure I'm going to be down 10 pounds and you get on the scale and you're down, you know, five pounds. At that first difficult moment where reality has not matched your expectations, you tend to shut down. You start to feel threatened and what your brain naturally wants to do is protect that false confidence right? Because it doesn't feel good to fail. So that's when you start sort of negotiating with yourself of, you know, actually, you know what, this probably isn't the right time or, you know, that sort of thing. You start kind of negotiating to, to find loopholes to like let yourself off the hook because that will protect this, you know, sort of shell of, of confidence rather than continuing to push and potentially feeling like a failure. What happens, so that, that disconnect, that mismatch, he refers to as an action crisis. Um, and I would venture to say everybody listening has probably experienced an action crisis where you're just like, oof, I got like gut punched with reality, which is I'm actually not going to lose 20 pounds this month. Um, and now I need to sort of reconcile, well, I really only felt like I could maintain this effort if it was only going to be two months and I would be at my goal. Based on what I'm seeing, it might be more like four or six months to, for, for me to reach my goal. I can't maintain this level of effort that long. That doesn't feel good. I should probably quit before I feel like a failure, right? So that's what, that's what happens. So we don't want that. When your expectations are aligned with reality, you're able to pace yourself better. You're able to perform to your current capabilities and do it in a way that is sustainable for the long haul. So there's a, an example in the book of talking about if you ever watch like kids do a, a running race, what you're going to see is they all basically start like sprinting out of the gate and inevitably not too far in, most of them start walking. And then they get kind of a second wind and they, they sprint again. And it's, it's like these, these intervals, right? These bursts. Whereas if you have a more seasoned endurance athlete who looks at the event at large and says like, all right, I'm running, you know, 26 miles here. I can't be trying to set a PR on my first mile. I'm never going to get across the finish line that way. So what does it look like? How do I, how do I pace myself, right? So that's what it boils down to is if you have this, this disconnect between your expectations and reality, odds are you are going to be like that kid in the race, come out really hot, be like, oh, well, this isn't feeling good. And then you stop. 
and then you start again and you stop and you don't have the momentum to actually reach your goal. Whereas when you approach it from essentially from a lifestyle standpoint of the changes that I'm going to make that will help me lose weight are the same ones that are going to help me maintain those results. It feels much different. Then it's more so like, how do I do this, do this in a stepwise way that doesn't feel overwhelming? That's creating the foundation for me to be successful long term. That looks like starting more slowly. But as we all know from the tortoise and the hare, starting more slowly means you are able to keep going longer. And for almost all of us, weight loss is more of an endurance event than it is a sprint, right? Because it's not just how fast can I get the weight off? It's how do I lose the weight in a way that I can maintain? All right. So you might be wondering, how do I align my actual and my expected demands? Number one. You have heard me say this time and time again, but I think sometimes it's helpful when people besides me (laughs) reinforce it. Set appropriate goals that are just beyond your current capabilities. So here we're talking about behavior goals, but also you could could argue, you know, for outcomes as well as like being realistic. Okay, I'm not going to lose 15 pounds this month. Where do I set the bar that's more realistic? But also... Like what is just beyond, what's like a tiny stretch goal, something I'm confident I can do, but it's a little bit more than what I've been doing, right? That's the key to setting goals that are going to help you succeed rather than than contribute to this kind of on-off cycle. Because when the mismatch is too large, it decreases your motivation. I see this time and time again with clients who are like, yes, I'm gung-ho, I'm ready to go, I'm fully committed, I want to go all in. And it's like, all right, so I'm going to start tracking my food, I'm going to hit my calorie goal, I'm going to hit my protein goal, I'm going to hit my fiber goal, I'm going to hit my steps, and I'm going to do my strength training, I'm going to do my rest days, I'm going to walk, I'm going to And it's just like, all those things are great. You are currently doing not most of them. So that, that first rung is too high. And at the end of week one, when you set eight goals and hit one and a half of them, you're going to feel like crap. And then you're going to feel unmotivated and you're not going to want to continue, right? So we have to learn from the past. We have to recognize I've done that before. That hasn't worked. So what would it look like to say, you know what? I've been walking 2,500 steps a day. I think I can get 3,000 this week. And I have no idea how much I'm even eating. So all I'm going to do is document what I've been doing and start there, right? It might not feel like enough, but at the end of the week, when you've done it, you're going to feel really good your motivation is actually going to increase. You're going to be realizing that you do have that autonomy. You're going to want to do more and you can gradually build from there. So the second step to aligning your actual and your expected demands is to set goals that you actually care about that come from you and reflect who you are and what you care about. I think a lot of us set goals that are sort of imposed by others or by society that we feel like we should set when in reality, we don't actually care that much. I see this often with women who have really small weight loss goals, you know, 5, 10, 15 pounds and are struggling to figure out like why they even care about that goal, right? You know, we'll ask those sort of probing questions of like, you know, what will will be different about your life? What would it mean to you? That sort of thing. And it's, it's always sort of that surface level of like, I just want to, or just like, I feel like I would, you know, look better if um, if I were a little bit smaller, like there's no real like emotion behind it. It's often because a lot of women have sort of been conditioned to always say they have a weight loss goal. When I started working 
at the Boston Sports Club right after college in um, it's a, a commercial gym as a personal trainer. We did a lot of role playing to help, you know, with sales skills and with like um, onboarding new clients and stuff like that. So we we did a lot of talking about goals. And my goal was always, I'd like to lose about five pounds and, and build some muscle. I mean, those were hollow words. Like that didn't mean anything to me. I just said it because like I didn't really know a woman who didn't want to lose weight. So it just felt like what I should say. I didn't actually care about it. But I said it. So I think it's important to reflect on, do I actually care about this goal? Or is it just something that I've sort of picked up and said for a long time, but that like actually isn't important to me? If you're enjoying this episode, I want to invite you to join us in our coaching program, Gone for Good. Gone for Good is our signature 12-week coaching program designed to help you develop the confidence, commitment, and consistency necessary to make reaching your weight loss and health goals inevitable. Our three-part framework helps you learn and master the exercise nutrition big rocks, provides comprehensive support and accountability, and teaches you how to take compassionate ownership of your results. With both group and one-on-one options, we have a Gone for Good package to suit your needs and help you overcome every obstacle between you and the weight loss you're after. Whether you want to lose 5 pounds, 50 pounds, or 150 pounds, we can help you in Gone for Good. For all the info and to join, go to estheravant.com slash coaching. He talks about how tough people are self-aware. And I think that's that's a really important point that you have to do the work to, to figure out what matters to you and, and why. The third step or piece of aligning your actual and your expect, expected demands is to focus on process-oriented goals or behavior-based goals, like your effort, your consistency, rather than outcomes that are out of your control. I've talked about this before in goal-setting episodes as well. But judging yourself based on your effort or the execution of your plan gives you a roadmap for your next attempt. I'm sure you've heard me say, I know what to do, I'm just not doing it, is such a dead-end thought, because the real question you should be asking is, why aren't you doing what you know to do or what you said you would do? So this is really, really important. The, the idea of judging yourself based on you know, how well you executed the plan that you came up with gives you the roadmap for your next attempt. We do this every week with our clients. They do a, a weekly reflection on like, what goals did you set last week? Did you accomplish them? If not, why not? And what will you learn from that going forward? Right? We're not expecting that we're going to be able to flawlessly execute any plan or that we're going to give 100% effort all the time. But more so, we need to develop the awareness and, and sort of the, the practice of reflecting on that. And I, would, I don't know if, if, if judging yourself is, is the best way to put it, um, but reflecting on those things, I'd say, without judgment and then taking ownership of given that information, what do I want to do about it so that next time I don't repeat the same thing? If you have set goals or made a plan more than a couple weeks in a row and not followed through on it or not reached it, that's a sign that something needs to change. And if you're week after week after week saying like, oh, I said I was going to do this, but then I didn't, how much effort are you actually making to overcome that thing? And maybe that goes back to having set a goal that you don't actually care about. But at the end of the day, if the same thing is tripping you up over and over again, that is a sign that you need to reflect on why is this happening so that then you can change something going forward. 
And then the last piece of aligning those actual unexpected demands is course correcting for stress. We know, and this is not unique to you, that stress and fatigue alter our judgment of what we're capable of. And that when we are tired and when we're stressed, it shifts our mentality toward the negative. This is a survival instinct to make sure that we are not overlooking a, a threat, a, a danger to, to our lives. But when we're not actually in danger, really what it does is just like hampers our performance. So we have to train ourselves to look for the positive, to look for opportunities rather than threats. And most importantly, we need to remind ourselves of these facts when we're stressed. And we need to anticipate the stressful times and preempt how we might feel or create awareness so that we don't spiral or sabotage, right? So this kind of goes back to what I was saying a minute ago is that like if the same things keep happening over and over, you got to do something differently about them. So if you are continuously finding yourself overeating because you're tired, because you keep doom scrolling too late, or you are stressed out with work and your kids and so much going on, but you are also not actively engaging in like stress management techniques, like these, the, making the, the connections between how stress and lack of sleep impact your hormones, your cravings, your willpower, your discipline, your motivation, all those things, it's all connected. So rather than every time you're in a stressful situation, getting caught off guard, you need to start reminding yourself, like, okay, this is how I have responded to these things historically. Or when I'm stressed, I have a tendency to whatever. And then working on either leaning into that or developing that, that set of tools to help you respond differently. But you can't just let lack of sleep or stress blindside you over and over and over again. You need to start, this is, this is the work that most people avoid. You need to start figuring out, like, how am I going to learn how to handle th these things differently? Or how am I going to help ensure that I'm in these situations less frequently so that they stop becoming such a big factor in my success or my lack thereof? Another really interesting part of the book was about how confidence intersects with mental toughness. And one thing I thought was really beneficial to read and remember is that having doubts and insecurities is part of being human. Literally everyone has them, even the people you see succeeding or seeming like they don't have doubts or insecurities. There are lots of people who look confident, but who are in reality doing those things despite having doubt and insecurity not in lieu of them. And I think that's, that's absolutely true. I haven't met a single person, even in, you know, very important careers or very, you know, I guess like high, high ranking or like in, in positions of authority or people who are, who are very successful or who, who you'd look at and say like, oh, they're totally confident. They like just don't have the same doubts that I do. I've never met anybody who doesn't. It's just that they are doing stuff anyway. They're taking action anyway. I think a, a good example of that would be in like writing a book. I will tell you I have had and still do have so much doubt 
about that of, you know, questioning who am I? I'm not an Ivy League professor. I don't have this, you know, massive following. Who am I to write a book? I don't know enough. I'm not smart enough. I haven't helped enough people, you know, whatever, whatever. And even after going through the writing process and going from, you know, my index cards of like random thoughts to a book that is, is good, um, I still, you know, have have fears that like I'm going to launch it out into the world and like no one will buy it or everybody will hate it or I'll, you know, I'll be found out to like be a fraud, right? So you might see me on social media saying like I'm so proud that I wrote this book and think like wow, she's like so confident, you know, she she doesn't have the same, you know, doubt that I do. I wish I had that um you know, I wish I wish I didn't have these doubts or I wish I had that confidence and like what you don't see is like all of that stuff, right? It's like, it's not that I don't have that, that mental baggage. It's that I decided to do the thing despite it. And that's really what, what this, you know, kind of toughness thing boils down to is that like, when you're lacking confidence, it gives that doubt and insecurity room to grow. And your perception of your resources or the tools you have at your disposal shrinks. And the, you're, you're, you're more susceptible to that negative spiral. So essentially like confidence or, or the lack thereof is like a filter that alters or, or tints how we see the challenges before us and our ability to handle them. Someone with confidence sees those things as challenges, whereas someone who is lacking in confidence sees those challenges as threats. Right. So, you know, the, the difference being I'm up for the challenge as opposed to I'm scared of that threat. So this confidence comes from inside. It's not ignoring the doubt and insecurity, but it's coming to terms with them and what you're capable of while being secure in the knowledge that you will find a way past the obstacles in your way. So I've said before that one of the forms of progress that I'm most proud of in our clients is the confidence that they develop. And if you've listened to any of our client spotlight episodes, you've heard client after client after client talk about how they have just come to believe that their success is inevitable. Their confidence goes through the roof. And this is why. It's not that they don't have moments of doubt or insecurity. They certainly do. And our coaches can attest to that. Like we all, if you've ever worked with a coach or really any sort of like accountability partner, you know that you have just like those moments of freak out or maybe it's, you know, you get on the scale and you're just like, I was doing so well and I was feeling so good. And like, now I'm just not. Now I feel like it's never, I'm never going to be successful, right? We all have those moments. But it's when you're able to center yourself and zoom out a little bit and take a deep breath and be like, okay, that's not actually true. I'm doing really well. Look at what I've already accomplished. And you're able to like reason with yourself. You're able to acknowledge like, it's okay that I have, doubt and insecurity and, and, you know, sort of those moments of weakness. And also I can figure this out. I can find a way pass through over under, you know, whatever through this. And that's a big piece of where having a coach comes in is you're not expected to know how to do all this stuff already, but when you work with somebody, they can help you navigate that obstacle the first, first time, second, third, fourth, fifth, however many times. And you get more practice with guidance under your belt so that then when you face a similar obstacle or a similar challenge in the future, you know how to handle it. He also talks about the connection between self-esteem and confidence and how they go hand in hand. But that, <laughs> if, you, if you grew up in, I guess, maybe a little bit 
little bit younger than I am, um, this will this will resonate. But that lasting lasting self esteem doesn't come from being told we're great or being given you know participation trophy. It comes from doing the actual work. And he talks about how there's sort of like true like inner self worth, and then there's contingent self worth where our self-worth is dependent on outside factors. And we get our sense of self from what other people think about us or how we're judged. And in order to feel good about ourselves, we need praise and rewards. The problem with that is that when our sense of self shifts externally, our motivation shifts with it. And then we only have external motivation. That's when like you are motivated to keep losing weight as long as people are giving you compliments. But if nobody notices or if those die down because like now it's just what you look like, now you're no longer motivated as opposed to your self-worth being dependent on inside factors and knowing that you are a worthy, deserving human being, period, and that you are doing this because it's important to you and it's aligned with your values. Sure, the compliments are nice, but they're not what's driving you to show up. So here are some tips for creating that inner confidence that will make reaching your weight loss goal so much easier. First one, my, my absolute favorite part of, of the book, is the idea of lowering the bar and raising the floor. So you may have heard me talk before about the, the term we have in coaching, BAMs, your bare-ass minimums. And that's something we use when you're busy or stressed or um, you know traveling. It's like, what's the, the absolute minimum I'm expecting of myself for today to have been a success? So if normally you set a you know, 8,000 step goal, but you know I'm going to be in you know, a conference all day, I'm going to aim for 5,000, right? You are adjusting, you are, you are lowering the bar to put it somewhere that, that you know you can accomplish, but that you're still having to like kind of strive a little bit to be having to, to pay attention to it, um, but it's not going to feel out of reach given the change in, in circumstances. He talks about how most of us go for a lift the ceiling approach, which is where we judge ourselves by our best performance ever. I'm going to talk gym stuff here because it's the most obvious comparison. So you've got your PR, your personal record. Maybe on your Peloton, it's a certain output. You know, you got 250 on a 30-minute you know, ride or whatever. Um, or you, you know, squatted your body weight. That's your best ever. The problem with going with the lift the ceiling approach is that when you are judging yourself against your all-time best, you are inevitably going to fall short more often than not. Right? So think about a competitive athlete who has a, a world record. If she's judging her success based on, did I break the world record today? She is very, 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 very mostly going to fall short, right? So if that's the benchmark that she's using, she's not going to be super motivated by that because she keeps falling short. So instead, you want to make your goal to raise your minimum expectation. You want something, you want to get yourself to a point where you know that, you know, X performance is repeatable. You know on your worst day, your busiest day where the kids are homesick and you're under a deadline and your husband is traveling, you know you can still get in 
a 15 minute strength workout, or you know you can still crack open a can of veggies. Instead of aiming for something that you can only do rarely, that, that PR performance, you're shooting for improving your best average. I think that's so, so useful. Improve your best average. And this is, this is really aligned with, with everything I talk about goal setting, is if your average the last couple of weeks was I did one workout, do not set the bar next week at five workouts. It's too big a jump. You have not aligned your expectations with the actual demands. But if you make the goal the next two, three weeks to get two workouts, what you're doing is raising your floor. You're improving your best average. Now I'm averaging two workouts a week. Okay, great. Now that that feels like what I can do on my worst week, now I can raise the floor a tiny bit more. You're setting a standard that falls within or just outside what you've been capable of. You're embracing the reality of where you are now. And as long as you do what's in your control, you will achieve that certain standard no matter the circumstances. And think about the confidence that will come from that. If you are week in and week out setting goals in this way, think about how successful you're going to feel and the confidence that you're going to build knowing that you are the one who has created that success. The second tip for creating that inner confidence is to ditch the perfectionism and just embrace who you are and where you are and what you're capable of. Acknowledge that, like everybody, you have strengths and weaknesses. And acknowledge that you're not immune to failure. And just the acceptance of that is going to give you more confidence. Just recognizing there is a possibility that I will fall short. There is a, you know, going back to my book, there is a possibility that I will put this book out into the world and it will be a a massive flop. That my dad, my husband, Meg, will be the only people who buy it. And I want to go like live under a rock. That is a possibility. It's not likely, I know. Um, But just acknowledging, just like saying those words out loud is important to to acknowledge. So the author also encourages us to be stable in who we are, but recognize that the details are up for revision. And I really like this. I've, I've talked before about how important it is to, you know, be committed to the goals that you set, but flexible in, in how you actually accomplish them, right? That you're not this like rigid robot who makes a plan and then like cannot veer from it. You say, all right, I'm going to work out three times this week and it's going to be Monday, Wednesday, Friday at nine. And also, if something comes up on Wednesday at nine, I will still get that workout in at a different time because I said I would do it and I am flexible enough to kind of roll with the punches as necessary, right? So what this might look like is the, the identity. I'm a healthy person, right? That is stable. That is, that's secure. That's not going anywhere. But what I do for workouts can change. Sometimes I walk. Sometimes I ride my Peloton. Sometimes I strength train. Sometimes I'm into yoga. Sometimes I go boxing, like whatever. It's not being rigid in what that definition of a healthy person looks like, but being really, you know, confident and like, that's just who I am. What that looks like day to day can be different. Number three for building inner confidence, trusting your training and trusting yourself. You have to take action in order to build confidence. You can't read about it and 
make it be so, you can't hear about it, make it be so, you have to do the work and you have to have the goal be to learn and to grow and to get better and to enjoy the process rather than, you know, just trying to jump straight to the outcome. And as far as trusting yourself, it's what I was talking about earlier, just sort of that feeling that like, I, I'm prepared for this. I can handle this. I may not have seen this exact thing before, but I know I have the tools that I need or I have the resources at my disposal to figure this out just like I have everything else. And then the fourth component is developing a quiet ego. This one I think is interesting. He talks about how, like at our core, we believe that we're good, competent people. And I want the, the focus here to be on, on competence because I think that's the most relevant. So we, we believe that we're just generally competent. And when we are presented with evidence to the contrary, our ego goes into overdrive to rationalize or justify, justify or kind of explain why that evidence can't be true. So I want you to think about, you know, the first, when you first started tracking your food. <laughs> Part of why we don't like doing new things as adults is because it makes us feel incompetent, right? And then that goes back to like, oh, I don't like feeling this way. So I'm going to come up with, my brain is going to come up with reasons why I can't continue this thing. But those reasons aren't why. It's not too hard. It's not that I don't have time. It's not that it doesn't work. It's that I don't like being a beginner. I don't like feeling like I'm incompetent at this. So I'd rather just avoid it. So we need to develop the ability to zoom out and give ourselves the perspective and understand that this short-term, you know, quote-unquote loss, this discomfort of feeling incompetent and being a beginner is just part of the long-term gain, right? You can't get the outcome that you want if you don't go through kind of the muck of learning this new stuff. So you need to have self-awareness, the ability to reflect, and a secure sense of who you are. I've talked a ton about compassionate ownership, which essentially boils down to reflecting without judgment and then taking responsibility for what to do next. Another interesting concept is that of learned helplessness. And there's a lot of evidence or there's a lot of research on, on this in rodents. But essentially what it boils down to is when choice and control are taken away and you have no power over what's happening to you, you lose the ability to try to change your circumstances or change what's happening. Right? So if, if you're a rat and you're in this cage and no matter what you do, you are going to get electrocuted. I think, so, so let me give a little bit more context to that. Um, there's food at one end, you're at the other end. If every time you cross the, the halfway point, you get zapped, you can't get the food, you get electrocuted, eventually you are going to stop going after the food. And to the extent that like these rats would just like starve to death, right? If you feel like you have absolutely no power or, or choice or control, you end up in what, uh, what the author calls give up-itis, just like general defeat, listless, listlessness, where it's like, if no matter what I do, it doesn't make a difference, why bother, right? I've talked to a lot of women who have felt this way with their weight loss of like, I've tried everything, nothing's working, so why am I bothering? If I am having to turn my whole world upside down and I still only lose a pound at the end of the week, why bother? We end up blaming our lack of willpower or a lack of motivation, but what we're really experiencing is a lack of self-control over our own lives. 
and that leads to the apathy taking over. So in order to overcome this, and you might you might not be in like full give up itis where you're just gonna like lay in bed until you starve to death, um, but you may if if you've had those thoughts of like it doesn't matter what I do anyway, it's not gonna work. What you want to do is start to train yourself again to have hope. And small actions that remind you that you have a choice go a long way. So Mattis, I guess, is no longer qualifies as a toddler, but he's a, a little guy. And I, I got this advice from a, a toddler sleep coach when he was younger, is that it's a lot easier to work with toddlers and reason with them if you give them choices like do you want to put your pants on first or do you want to put your shirt on first or do you want to brush your teeth or do you want to you know get dressed whatever you're giving them a choice so that just the ability to choose feels like a reward either way they're doing one of the things you wanted them to do they feel like they've won because they're the one who decided what that thing was and as you've experienced if, if you have a toddler you've done this with you know that their performance then improves instead of whining and throwing a tantrum next thing you know they're dressed their their teeth are brushed they're fed whatever um so the same thing works with ourselves and actually our response to stress depends on our level of perceived control if you're just going around feeling like i have there's nothing i can do about this you're going to feel a lot more stressed than if you are focused on the things that you do have control over and this is something I talk about with um, with Cindy in episode, I think it's 160, um, 168. We talk about um, how, to, how to focus on, on what you can control. Um, but here are some, some other tips. Um, start with the smallest item under your control that's related to the problem. Maybe it's like taking a, a multivitamin every morning. Just something that helps you get a foothold so that you can start climbing to the next level. So start with the smallest thing and gradually work to, to bigger things, right? What you're wanting to do is, is show yourself that you do have control, you do have autonomy. Same thing as, as if you were a toddler, give yourself a choice. And this, is a, this came up in another book too. I think the book How to Change um, is to allow for a mulligan because if you go down that all or nothing road, it often leaves you with nothing. So kind of give yourself a do-over when you need it. And Interestingly, he talks about how sometimes giving yourself a choice means entertaining the idea of quitting because quitting is a choice and choice gives you control. Actually, I'd never thought of it in this way before, but I realized that I have often done this with, uh, with, with workouts. And um, when I'm in a really difficult workout, I sometimes I, I've looked at it as like kind of taunting myself of like, fine, why don't you quit? But what I'm really doing is I'm, I'm entertaining the option of quitting because it makes me remember that I'm choosing to keep going, right? Nobody is forcing me to do this workout. I, I actually could quit whenever I wanted. I'm choosing not to. And that reframe helps a ton with like, even if it's every rep, I'm like, all right, quit after the next one, quit after the next one, right? I, have, I still have the choice. I'm still choosing not to, but it's always an option. Now, I think whether or not you implement that one sort of depends on <laughs> Are you going to take yourself up on it? Because you don't want to encourage yourself to quit. Um, so I think I do think it's kind of a fine line there. But um, but it could help you sort of reframe and, and remember that like you actually do want to keep going. Um, but maybe it's something like today: Do I want to walk on my treadmill or do I want to bundle up and, and go outside? It's just something where like like with your toddler. Either way, you're going to do something that is good for you and and that you do want to want to do. But you feel like you've won because you got to decide, no, I don't want to put my boots on today. Great, I'm on the treadmill. Or, you know what, the fresh air would be good for me. Great, look at me outside, right? Um, 
another way to kind of build up the, the control that you realize you have is to flip like a, a mental script that you might have. Give yourself permission to do something that you thought was negative. An example of that is um, he talks about, you know, like admitting that you're nervous or that you don't know what you're doing. That's like me saying like, yeah, I wrote this book and like, I'm super nervous about it. Like, I don't know if it's going to be a success, right? Just like putting out into the world, like calling a spade a spade, addressing the elephant in the room. Um, sometimes that can, um, that can make a big difference. Or another one he talks about is scheduling a meltdown. He works, he works a lot with, um, competitive runners and, um, you know, there was there was one who I can't remember if it was like diarrhea or throwing up, but either way, um, we'll go throwing up because it's like less gross to think about. Um, this athlete would throw up like before every race and it was always at like really inopportune times. And then they started like kind of leaning into it and being like, all right, so you're going to throw up today. Like, do you want to throw up before or after you stretch? And it ended up just like taking, she felt like she was taking the, the control back. And she was like, well, I guess you know, today I want to throw up after. And, and she like, she stopped throwing up like right away, right? Because she she had took, taken back the control. Um, so figuring out like how you can take power away from the the thing. This might be, you know, proving to yourself, I actually can have, you know, one scoop of ice cream and be done, right? If you've been telling yourself like, oh, I once I start, I can't stop. And then you just one time, you share yourself that you can stop. It's like, oh, well, like now, now that thing just isn't true anymore. Um. And the last, um, last tip there is to create rituals. Those shift our focus to the behaviors that we're in charge of and pushes into the back of our minds the things that we have little control over. So I think a morning ritual is something a lot of us are familiar with. Is like if you always wake up and you're like immediately stressing about you know, how much traffic there's going to be and who's going to say what at the meeting and like, you know, just kind of like you're, you're focusing on all this external stuff. If in the mornings you just get in the habit of like, I wake up, I drink a glass of water, I go to the bathroom, I take a shower, I put on my makeup, I, you know, whatever, whatever, doesn't matter what you're doing. But if you are doing those things consistently and it just becomes like this routine, there's comfort in that and it helps you see that like, oh, I'm actually choosing to do the same things in the same order um, and, and it's pushing, it's, it's helping you focus on those things you control and less on the things that you can't. All right, next piece of developing mental toughness is learning to listen to your body. He talks about how our emotions tell us important information and nudge us toward action and then help us decide what path to choose. And when we ignore them, we're losing the information that could help us make better decisions. That's basically like taking all the indicators on your dashboard, all those, those um, lights and stuff, and just like smashing them. Like, I don't need to know how much gas I have. I don't need to know how fast I'm going. I don't need any of that info, right? And you're just like wing it and hope for the best. That's basically what we're doing when we don't learn how to acknowledge and name our emotions. Our emotions do depend on context and they're open to interpretation so the better able we are to interpret them the better we're able to make decisions based on that information so essentially like if you if you're not able to read the signals if you don't know what you're feeling if you're just generally like you know like a like a toddler who like doesn't know how to regulate their emotions what you're going to do is choose the easiest way to cope which is going to be to either ignore or eliminate those negative feelings and when you don't have any clarity around your emotions, you are going to choose those less effective coping mechanisms. So in order to better discern your emotions, 
you need to, number one, be aware that you are feeling something. And then number two, you need to be able to interpret and contextualize them. In simpler terms, that's being able to notice and then name your emotions. That the, the naming takes it from this ambiguous thing of just like general badness, general goodness, into something tangible. It's like saying, it's the difference between saying, I'm sad, which is like you as like the frown emoji, to I am experiencing a wave of sadness, which is a recognition that like you are not the feeling. It has not taken over you or your body. It is a temporary emotion and you get to decide how you handle it. The focus on the noticing and the naming impacts everything that happens afterward. Your inner dialogue, where you, where you focus your attention, how you respond to those feelings. And that's the third sort of important piece of developing this mental toughness is learning how to respond instead of react. You've heard me talk about building in a pause, creating a space between the stimulus and your response to it. We really have four ways that we deal with unpleasant feelings or the negative self-talk that kind of comes downstream of those is like the knee jerk that most of us have is we avoid them or we ignore them, right? We try to distract ourselves or um, you know, just push them down. Um, we try to fight them. So those two are sort of like the old school model of toughness of just like, you know, fight back or push it down, but like do not acknowledge. The other options are to just accept them and you know, similar to like kind of that, like I'm experiencing a wave of sadness, just like accept it, like I'm experiencing a wave of sadness right now. That's fine. It's not gonna last forever. Like this is okay, right? Just like not trying to fight it. Um, or reappraise them. And these, these two, the accept and the reappraise, drain the sensation of power and make you better at handling it. One of the things that will help you get better at building in that pause is, you're not going to like this, you should do it anyway, spending time alone in your head. The author says that this is a foundational piece of toughness that most of us are terrible at. With the modern world and how much information and, and stimulus and distraction we have at our fingertips, we're losing the ability to just sit with our thoughts and the problem is that when our, when our thoughts, like when our inner self becomes foreign, we get really sensitive to anything that it says. So what we want to do is, is train ourselves and spend some time just like sitting with whatever comes up with no distractions. Like don't pull up your phone, don't check social media. Use that slight discomfort, use the unease as an opportunity to train your mental muscle to pause and just sit with it. Just like, just be. And that will help you train your brain that it doesn't need to continue repeating the habit of reacting. The more you practice just sitting and feeling, the easier it is to not freak out in the future when you have feelings to feel. You can just be like, okay, yeah, this doesn't feel good. This is intense. And also I've been here before. I know I can handle it. I know it's not going to last forever. And you're then better able to sit, you know, take those deep breaths, figure out, you know, really, no, you know, notice a name. How am I feeling? What am I feeling? Why? What do I want to do about it? Instead of, you know, like I was saying, avoid, ignoring, fighting, that sort of thing. All right. So that brings us to the end. The big takeaways that I want you to have here are, 
number one, the importance of mental toughness in reaching your weight loss and, and really any goal and how this chunk of the work is really so worth doing that when, you know, to go back to, to the kind of that new definition of toughness, the ability to experience discomfort or distress, leaning in, paying attention and creating space to take thoughtful action, maintaining a clear head to be able to make the appropriate decision and developing the tool set to handle adversity. That's what this is all about. And when you approach your weight loss from that standpoint, not only will you be so much more successful at navigating the journey, reaching your goal, and maintaining your results, you will also have developed incredible life skills that benefit you in every other area of your life. And like I've mentioned a couple times in the episode, this is exactly what we do in our Gone for Good program. Yes, we help you with exercise. Yes, we help you with nutrition. Yes, we help you know hold you accountable. And also, we help you do exactly this. And this is the foundation of weight loss that lasts. So if you have interest in that, go to estherraven.com slash coaching, check out our program, feel free to reply, feel free to apply. We'll hop on a call together. We'll see if it's a good fit for you. With that, thank you guys for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Live Diet Free Podcast. Whether this is your first episode or you've listened to them all, I appreciate you being here. One way you can help this podcast succeed is to subscribe, rate, and review it. If you don't mind doing those things, I would love to thank you with a copy of our weekend survival guide designed to help you have weekends you enjoy that don't set you back from reaching your goals. Just send a screenshot of your review to admin at estheravant.com and we'll send it over. And don't forget to check out estheravant.com slash coaching for all the info about our Gone for Good coaching program designed to help you develop the confidence, commitment, and consistency necessary to make reaching your health and weight loss goals inevitable. Our three-part framework helps you learn and master the exercise and nutrition big rocks, provides comprehensive support and accountability, and teaches you how to take compassionate ownership of your results. With both group and one-on-one options, we have a Gone for Good package to suit your needs and help you overcome every obstacle between you and the weight loss you're after.